Thank you, worship team, for leading us in those songs of praise. And just, uh, it's always neat to kind of get to sing it twice, especially those that are in both services, and you get to hear different truths and reflected in the songs. And just the, this last time, I just reflect on the last, uh, uh, the last, guess, the chorus of this, of the last, or the final song. You know, we uh, have nothing to glory in except for that which Christ uh, has given to, for our souls. So. The, that which is really uh, Christ himself, his life. We boast in Christ. We glory in Christ. Uh, nothing else. He alone. So that's a, kind of just a wonderful, profound truth. You know, we can glory in many things. Um, but we, uh, in this world, they think you might boast in. But really, we have nothing to boast of except in Christ. So that's a, um, just a humbling truth. Well, take your Bibles. Uh, we look to uh, the Word of Christ this morning as we look, uh, examine the book of Titus, Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through, net, five through 9, <clears throat> where we'll uh, finish up our second part of this two-part message based from this text, uh, verses 5 through 9, on the theme of appointing godly elders, appointing godly elders. And um, <clears throat> boy, I tell you, it's always interesting to me, I tell my wife sometimes we talk about it, it's always the pastors that I think are the easiest to preach are the hardest to preach. It's kind of, oh yeah, what does that mean? Am I being, it's just because, it's just that I, um, when I come to this passage, I kind of know generally, as a, particularly as a pastor and elder, I know generally what this subject is, but it is, as I studied it again this past week, it just really challenged my own heart. And it, uh, there are just moments where I just had to pause and, and just, I wipe away the tears as I repented, you know, of, of the areas of my life that I still fall short of God's, and really just sensing my, feeling the overwhelming inadequacy to be a, to be a shepherd of Christ's church, uh, but yet just uh, thankful that it is God who uh, his sustains us and gives us grace to be his shepherd. So I love this passage, but it was just, uh, it really tore me up this week, and so I pray we'll do the same for you, okay? pray the same we'll do for you. May it tear you up. <laughs> May it challenge you. Uh, even for those of you that may not be elders, you know, many of you are, are not elders. You may not aspire to be elders of the church of Christ. Um, but I would say that, uh, especially in the, the bigger picture of Titus, that talks about the importance of uh, doctrine, truth, or that leads to godliness. Uh, where do we learn truth that leads to godliness? We learn that from our elders, our shepherds. And so it's important that we have godly elders, godly shepherds. So a church that doesn't have godly elders, doesn't have godly shepherds, is not, it's going to be a church that doesn't have teaching, healthy teaching, teaching that sound doctrine that leads to godliness. And you can almost guarantee wherever you find an unhealthy, unhealthy church, you can just look to the leadership and you'll find there, will be, there is a lack, there's a shortage, or there's none godly leaders, godly elders of that church. You can I guarantee you that's, that's what happened to that church. Uh, because the leaders are given to guide the church. Well, so with that said, let's read the text this morning. Titus chapter 1, verse 5 through 9. And we uh, will focus today on verses 7 through 9. We looked at 5 to 6 last week. But we'll, again, I want to read the whole context of 5 through 9. It's, it belongs together. So Paul writing to Titus uh, on the island of Crete. For this reason, I left you in Crete that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who are faithful, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, 
not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word again. We thank you that your word tells us and gives us much about the elders and the pastors and the overseers of your church. And Lord, we pray as we look at this subject, may your spirit now teach us and fill us and bring us to an understanding of the meaning of this text, but Lord, also cause us to be convicted and challenged by its application. Lord, cause us to be, to, for us to pursue these traits as our elders reflect them of Christ. Help us to pray for these kind of men that you would raise up in the church. Help to pray for those who you place in this church who are serving as elders. And Father, we pray that you would continue to build up your church, cause your truth to be taught, truth that leads to godliness through these faithful, godly elders whom you place as stewards of your church. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified now and even in this room, I know that there's a, a wide, uh, wide uh, range of needs and, and burdens that are upon people's hearts. Father, I pray that, that somehow even through the preaching of this word, this particular subject, that you would minister to them, that you would cause them to hear your word, that they would see its, its truth and their need, why they need this truth. Lord, minister to each soul here, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. <clears throat> As one of the elders of this church here, uh, there are often times when I feel overwhelmed by the ministry. Uh, and I think I, probably, I don't know if I probably told you that before. I, I hope I have. And, you know, it's not just me. I, I think if you ask our, many of our other lay elders, there are time to time where they feel overwhelmed too. Sometimes it's the amount of work. There's uh, so many, much work, so, much, so many really souls in, involved here that each needing shepherding. And, and t- to do it in an orderly manner, uh, it's just, it's too great. There are too many needs. Sometimes it's just simply the weight of responsibility. It's uh, like the weight of responsibility of a father when you first, uh, when, you, when you get married and then you start having children. You realize you're responsible for these lives. You, you can't just, uh, you know, just... Just live your life any way you, you please. You actually have a charge, a responsibility to care for those under, uh, under your, uh, given to, entrusted to you by the Lord. Well, it's, uh, it's multiplied as a pastor, as an elder, because it's this bigger family. And sometimes the, we're overwhelmed by ministry because of sin. Sin, and it's always we're, we're grieved because of sin, because whether it's in the life of one of our members or it's just our own sin. There's no elder in this church that doesn't feel inadequate for the task from time to time. Um, it's probably the most common thing I hear when I ask men to consider being an elder. So will you be an elder or will you consider to be an elder in training of this church? And most of them will say, well, I don't feel adequate. I don't feel qualified. Welcome to the, everybody in the rest of the world. That's, all of us feel that way. All of us feel inadequate, unequipped not ready for the task. And that's a healthy place to be, uh, to tell you the truth. 
because we know that the scripture teaches that in our inadequacy, it is God who makes us adequate for the ministry. But sometimes when we talk about the way to lift it, you, you know, you get us, you know, my guards down, and I can tell you how uh, challenging and difficult the ministry is. I, I sometimes think, am I going to scare people away, you know? Are they going to not want to be elders? Because it's too, too heavy, dude. Let, let, just let, you know, those other guys do it. I'm, I'm, I'd rather be a deacon, you know, or a deaconess, you know? I'm just going to chill. Uh, I want to be my, I just want to be a junior church teacher. Actually, that's pretty hard. Don't, junior church teacher. That's like, that's, that's tough. That's tough. But if God is calling him, if God call, those whom God calls will rise up, will answer the call. And though they may feel wholly inadequate for the task, though there will be times they, and they, they will feel overwhelmed, God will give the grace to make him adequate and, and for, sufficient for the task. He will stand not because of his own merits or his own, his own efforts, but he will stand because of God. As we learn about elders this, uh, this last week and this week, uh, I just invite you to pray with me and pray with us as that God would raise up more elders to come alongside, to share the load. I, honestly, I, I, wish, uh, I wish we had more elders alongside so that we could have a, just a sabbatical for some of our elders to give them time to time off. Uh, but I know that most of them probably won't take it because they'll look around, they'll look at the work, they say this is too much. This, if I leave, if I leave it's, the weight is going, to be, it's going to be carried on by the other remaining elders, and it is, it is too much. So pray for them. Pray for us, the church. Now, as we study this topic of appointing elders of Christ's church, my aim in preaching this text is twofold. One is that we would prayerfully and seek to raise up more lay elders by the grace of God. It's God's will. That would be done. But my aim also has included for us that we would grasp how this text should influence us as we look for what we call staff elders. Usually we call them pastors, though uh, remember pastors are really elders. We've been looking for an associate pastor uh, for about uh, for a few months now. And so this passage, this appointing, the quali- appointing of elders based upon these qualifications should guide us through our, our process, our thoughts. It's what we should look for as we look at this text. First, second, and third in the man whom we want to call before we look at anything else in the man's life. Last week, our, as I just review, our outline for verses 5 through 9 was two observations concerning the appointment of godly elders in the church. And the first observation we, we talked about was just simply the need for elders. Verse 5 focused on that. Verse 5 tells us the need of elders, that there is need to set things in order in the churches on Crete. And young Titus was given the task to therefore appoint appoint godly men, appoint elders in every city, that is every church on the island of Crete where there there was a church. Now, the need for elders, after having uh, established that, in verses 6 to 9 then, Paul would outline for us or detail for us the needed qualities for elders. He had already told uh, Titus once before, uh, at least uh, that of what to look for in elders, but in, him, but in verse 6 now he repeats it in a sense. He's repeating what he had directed young Titus to do. He says, look for these things. Look for these things. 
And we learned in verse 6 that the overarching quality of an elder was that he needed to be above reproach. He must, must be a man who is above reproach in general. And this is not just something that he is, uh, he is to be in the, his general public life, but also and especially in his family life. The latter half of verse 6 talks about how he needs to be above reproach in his family life. That he needed to be a godly husband as well as a godly father. For Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 3 that if a man does not know how to manage his own household well, if he doesn't basically know how to care for his own family, how can he then take care of the church of God, which is really a bigger family, right? For the man who is faithful in little things proves himself to be worthy entrusted with greater things with the church. This morning, as we study the remainder of uh, verses 7 through 9 of uh, 7 through 9, we will then see that this uh, quality of above reproach in the, man, in the elder of God, uh, of God has to be above reproach also in the church, in the church life. Now, <clears throat> verse 7 through 9 it, it, uh, that we'll look at today could be qualities that we would hope are true in his work life, in his school life, in his uh, family life as well, in his general life in public as a, as a neighbor. But when we look at this, in particular the task that he's given as an overseer, we see the, some of the relationships, these words here, it is primarily reflected in church life. And as a church, we, when we observe men, we observe them primarily in our relationship with one another. How does this man relate to the church? How does he conduct himself when, he, when we gather together as a body? As a, then a more, I guess, a more specific outline of these latter verses of verse 7 through 9, in which will be our outline today, verse 7 through 9, we find four necessities of an elder who is above reproach in the church. These are the necessities of, a, of, a, of an elder, of a man who is above reproach in his church life. These things make him qualified to be an elder. So uh, we'll look then at these four points. Uh, verses 7 through 9, we'll probably spend uh, about equal time in each point. Well, Paul, in verse 7, will reiterate then that the elders must be above reproach. We mentioned this last week. He, re- he kind of repeats it. He says, not only that elder must, the man, any man who wishes to be, elder must be above reproach. In uh, uh, verse 6, he says, if any man is above reproach. But here in verse 7, it says, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward. Notice, uh, and that's the point number one, that the motivating factor for why a man must be above reproach is that he is, and he must be, he must see, understand that he is God's steward. He is God's steward. This term, notice that he, Paul has changed from the term elder to the term overseer here in verse 7. Now, overseer, in some of your translations, especially if you like the older translations, will translate as bishop. And if you are heard this term bishop, perhaps you've come from a, a tradition where there are bishops, and uh, there are some denominations where a bishop is not a pastor, but a bishop is someone who oversees a group of pastors. He might be a, a, oversee a region of, of a local churches where there are a bunch of pastors there, but that bishop kind of has hierarchical authority over those other pastors or shepherds of, the, of church. Now that is not what the Bible teaches. Uh, we understand, maybe I understand that kind of function, I can, uh, uh, the, the organizationally, but that's not how the term overseer, or bishop, is used in the Bible. The overseer here is the same as the elder, is the same as the pastor. These terms are all interchangeably used, which we mentioned last week. 
Elder emphasizes the man's age, his wisdom. Pastor emphasizes his, his responsibility for the flock. Overseer emphasizes his task. This is what he's called to do. This is his task as an overseer. It's his basic task that the elder or overseer has. The verb to oversee means to, to look at something, to take care of, to see to something. It encompasses all that the elder, the elders are to do in watching over the church that has been entrusted to them. Again, this above reproach, we, we mentioned it last week, but for the sake of those who were not here last week, what does it mean to be above reproach? To be above reproach means that a one who is, whose character cannot be called into question, that he's above being reproached or being called into to be condemned for some sin in his life that, has, that is ongoing sin. No one can raise any legitimate accusations against him. Now, having said this, it means, doesn't mean that he's sinless. There's no one who's sinless except Christ. Only Christ is. But he's a man who, when he does sin, is sensitive to it. And he's vigilant against it. He's quick to repent of it. He's above reproach. Now, why is such a standard required of an overseer and of elder? Why does he need to be above reproach? Isn't he just a sinner like the rest of us? Shouldn't he just kind of, you know, if we're not called to, in a sense, those uh, to hold to these qualifications, then maybe he doesn't have to be either. It's grace. Well, he is. He's called to such a standard. Now, but he's called to such a standard not because he's an example. Not because he's an example, though he is. It's not because it gives him credibility before others, though it does. But he's called to be above reproach. He's, he's expected of him to be a reproach because, the text tells us, he is God's steward. Because of who he belongs to, of his role before God, he is a steward that answers to God. Now, this word steward is a household, a family term. Uh, it was a, the steward was often a slave, a slave in those days. Actually, most people were, many people were slaves in those days. But a steward was a person appointed by the master, the landowner, to administer the master's estates, his lands, as well as his family, his household, as well as including his workers. So you can see this steward was a very important place in the household. He was number two in the family. He answered directly to the master. He had full powers granted to him by the master. He could basically conduct himself with great freedom. And he furthermore, he answered only to the master for how he conducted himself. We see this term uh, used much in the Gospels, particularly by Jesus in several places. But overall, when, we, when Jesus talks about the steward, the, when he mentions the steward, the overarching kind of qualification or the, the trait of a steward is that he must be faithful and trustworthy. And if you're going to put, give someone, you know, uh, if you're going to trust someone with all your stuff and all your family, you want that person to be trustworthy and faithful, right? When I hand off my baby to you, I see you as a trustworthy and faithful person. You're not just going to just rely, leave them lying around or, you know, you know, put them down here. You're not going to shake a sick person's hand and then, like, shake my little baby's hand. Okay, you're not going to do that because you're trustworthy and faithful. You're a good steward. 
But the fact is, this, this steward is what an elder of a church is to be. The elder of Christ, he's been tasked by God himself to care for a church. So it's not practical reasons that is because he's an example, because he's, it'll make him more effective. Those are good reasons to be above reproach. But the primary reason, the, the primary kind of, uh, that Paul mentions here for why he is to be such is because he answers to God as God's steward. It is a great task to be a steward. It's a task that ultimately the elders of this church answer to God alone for. Sometimes when I think about that, that we must one, I must one day give an account to God for how I've shepherded this church. There are times where I think, oh, that's in my, uh, in my really my fleshliness, I think, oh, that's a long time away. I don't know when that will happen. It kind of just becomes, and that's a dangerous place to be. But as elders, we should always be mindful that Christ would come back any moment, and any moment he returns, I must give an account. One day I will give an account, and that may happen today if the Lord should return. For every sheep that was neglected, lost, or abused, for every careless word, every self-serving deed, every act of negligence, the elder of God's church must answer to him for it. That's why he must be above reproach. What's more, the elder must never forget that the church doesn't belong to him. It belongs to God who is master. What's more, the elder must remember that to be an overseer is not simply to occupy an office. It's not just to carry a title. But it is a task that is given to him where he is called to give his life for the sake of the church of God. He must be above reproach. He will commit to be above reproach not only in his life, but it will, be, it will have a broad and wide impact upon his wife and his children. They will be seen in the same lens as the church sees him. Some of them will wilt under it. The elder, the shepherd of God's church must be above reproach. For he give, will give an answer to God as God's steward. Woe upon that man when he appears before the judgment seat of Christ and he has not been found above reproach as God's steward. An elder is God's steward and therefore must conduct himself like a steward responsible, faithful, trustworthy, above reproach. Jesus says in Luke 12, 43, of a good steward, of a faithful slave, blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes that he's faithful to his task. So then, that's our first point, that he is, the man is to be above reproach because he's God's steward. And what does it, we further ask, what does it look like then to be above reproach in the church? In the remainder of verse 7, Paul describes what a man above reproach must not be. He states it using negative attributes. He says, not this, not this, not this, not this, not this. I love that, that particularly in NASB, it emphasized that, that, prep, that the article, uh, the negation uh, there. Not, not, not. These are things you are not. 
There are five attributes mentioned here. We find them paralleled in 1 Timothy 3, uh, chapter 3, verse 3. And as we look at these attributes, we could summarize them under one term. We could tr- simply describe them as basically the sins of the flesh, the sins of self, our selfish, the sins of our selfish desires. Number two, then, our second point, the elder who is above reproach in Christ's church is one who is not led by the flesh. He's not led by the flesh. He's not given control by his sinful fleshly desires. And we see this reflected in these five attributes. You can kind of see what they are. Let's kind of just list them pretty plainly. Number one, an elder must not be self-willed. He must not be self-willed. Other translations have arrogant, overbearing. And those are different aspects of this. But the, basically is one who's given, who's controlled, who has given himself to the sin of pride. He's controlled by his pride. He's, he's led by his pride, his fleshly pride. An elder can't be a prideful man. Our Savior was a humble man. We must be humble men. But an elder who is a prideful man who thinks that his way is always the right way, he never yields to others. And maybe you've kind of met with people like that. You've worked with people like that. They always have to have the final word. They always have to have the last say. They always have to have it their way or the highway. I love our elders' meetings. I often come out of them quite discouraged. <laughs> I'll tell you the truth. You know, initially, because it humbles me. It humbles me. You can ask our elders about it. Sometimes we come, we come with ideas, and I bring an idea, and I, oh, I think it's the best idea since the scriptures were written down, you know. I'm like, this is a great idea. This is, this is the way we're going to go. And then, you know, we talk about it, and they all just say, hmm, no. <laughs> you know, not all, it doesn't happen often, but, you know, sometimes, right? And it doesn't happen to me, but it happens to the other brothers, too. So I don't see them at home, but, you know, I imagine they sometimes feel the same way. In our sinful flesh, our car, we're like discouraged. We're like, oh, man, my idea didn't get, my, my way was not chosen. And it's easy to get all upset about that in our carnalness, in our flesh, because it's pride. It's like, my, it should have been my way. Even though I was convinced that oh, this was the biblical way to go, this is the best way. But if it was, you know, if it was biblical, then it would be obvious to our other fellow elders, you see. But there is, I should, I oftentimes will get to that place where I realize, oh, you know, it's okay. You know why? In fact, I rejoice in it. Because I realize that God leads through not just me, but he leads through the plurality of elders. That as a protection to me just going off the deep end with any idea is the other elders who are filled by the Spirit, who are filled with the knowledge of God's Word, also evaluating, knowing the Scriptures, knowing this church, and saying, that may not be the best thing for the church right now. Next year it will be, though, right? Maybe. Okay. But I love that. That, and that happens to all of us, it should, and that keeps us humble as elders. It is a healthy thing. You know, how do you react uh, when you don't get your will, you don't get your way? That shows a little bit. And uh, hopefully for all, and all our elders <laughs> don't get our way from time to time. And uh, the other, it, it is because they are not controlled by their pride, though we still wrestle with pride from time to time. A steward is not going to be a self-willed man. He's not going to want to, he's going to want to seek not his will, but God's will. For to do, for to be self-willed makes him unfit to serve as a steward of God's church. Number two, he is going to be not quick-tempered. He's not going to be controlled by his anger. He's not given to outbursts of anger. (laughs) 
Proverbs 29:22 warns that an angry man stirs up strife and a hot-tempered man abounds in transgression. When you get angry, now there are times where it is, there can be such a thing as righteous anger, okay? Anger over sin. But we must be very careful when we allow anger to continue too far because um, our, the anger of man just falls short, you know? Oftentimes it will lead to sin. It leads to strife. Proverbs tells us it can abound in transgression. And we don't need strife. We don't need transgression in our, among our elders, The ministry is already stressful enough without strife caused by someone who has a quick temper in her elders' meeting. We must control our temper, our anger. We must not be led by the flesh in those ways. Thirdly, he's not the one who's led, he's not addicted to wine. That is, he's not controlled by his pleasures, his desire for pleasures. He's not, here it's really little, he's, he's not a drunkard. Not who gets drunk. We know, and we may talk about Christian liberty all we want, uh, but Ephesians five eighteen is really the main idea. It warns against not being drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't be controlled by the wine. And by application, this can be anything that can control us, that could affect our thoughts, and our behavior, our conduct. You know, many of the illicit drugs are out there. Oh, I mean, you can even be legal things, but if you're controlled by it, where, the, where you're neglecting everything else in your life. And that is something that is a pleasure that you've been controlled by, of the flesh. We need to be instead people who are controlled by the Spirit, by the Spirit of God. Ephesians 5.18 I mentioned. What's more, when we have too much wine in this case, it can lead to the next prohibition, the next quality. That is, the elder must not be pignacious. The elder can't be a fighter. We, I mean, I just read the news recently about somebody really famous, a famous basketball player, and he was like, supposedly he got in a, you know, just fight because of, well, so, so-called because he was drunk. And that happens because that happens all the time. We get into wine, we get drunk, we get in fights. But sometimes you don't even need to get drunk to get in fights. Some of us just are contentious people, you know? You know people like that? Yeah. You know one because I was like that, okay? All right? I was a pugnacious guy. When I first read this word as a young man, as a in the college, I thought, well, I don't know what that word means. Pugnacious? I had to look it up in the dictionary. Does that mean, like, likes pugs? You know, likes, <laughs> likes pugs? Maybe. But as you know, this, many of you probably already know, this word means a violent man. A violent man. Someone who is readily gets into fights. That, man, that was me. That was me, I tell you. I was given to physical violence. But especially when you're upset and angry. This man is the one who gets his way through bullying, through physically threatening others. He's a person that's always in their face. And he may get things done. Sometimes we like leaders like that. People can get things done by getting people's lives and getting in their face. And, but there's a, there comes a place, and we read about, uh, we're warned to not be an abusive kind of leader that by threat of force. Pugnaciousness is the, ultimate, is the, the end of that, the, the very final part of that. Lastly, number five, an elder must not be fond of sordid gain. He must not be controlled by his greed, his desire for wealth, by wealth. Elders, of course, have uh, greater access to the finance of the church. We are the, the ruling, kind of the ruling board, the ruling, uh, organize, the ruling uh, committee of the church. Uh, we can delegate funds here and there. And uh, if, you know, 
We've seen it in boards and in corporations where there's corruption because there's just work people working together to, for their own greed. That can happen on a church level as well. Like Judas Iscariot, elders can use their office for their own financial gain. So therefore, an elder must not be fond of sordid gain. He must not look to sneaky, wicked ways of gaining wealth for himself. These are the different aspects in which ways that men and women, by the way, right, can be controlled by the flesh, can be led by our flesh. These five attributes are reflective of our selfish desires for pride, our, our, being, our anger, pleasure, control, and wealth. Paul writes in Galatians 5.16 that this is not to be. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. You see, a man who is enslaved to the desires of the flesh is one who is not, who is not walking by the Spirit. And thus, if you're not walking by the Spirit, you're not going to be a very good steward of God. You're unable to lead the church. We must be, and this, this point leads us right into the third point of our, of, of our text. Not only an elder church must not be led by the flesh, but instead he must be led by the Spirit. The Spirit, that's right. Verse 8. Now the list of negative qualities that we've seen of an elder are now followed by some positive qualities. These are positive traits, positive qualities that we need to look for in elders and pastors of Christ's church. There are, there are six in all in this verse. And although these qualities are really, they're expected of all believers, You'll find them reiterated to believers in different, in different uh, passages. They are especially required for elders as God's steward. When you read the commentaries, uh, there is no consensus on whether or how these attributes are kind of related to each other. But as I look at, to, at them, they, I believe that they are primarily reflective of the heart attitudes of a man. The heart of a man. What's on the inside? What is his mind? What is his soul? What does his heart think about? What are the attitudes of his heart? What are the passions of his heart? The desires of his heart? And I believe that this is what these, these, these attributes are focused upon. Just as God looks at the heart, he doesn't look at your outward deeds until he, he looks primarily for a man after his own heart. Of course, that, that heart will reflect in deeds that God will then, uh, that God would expect to, us to manifest but these are primarily heart attitudes, first and foremost. But they do result in actions, outward actions. So let's look at then these, these attributes of one who is led by the Spirit. Number one, he is going to be hospitable. An elder must be hospitable. Literally, this is a lover of strangers. You love strangers, you know. And this is, uh, what's more, this is not just something that asks of elders. It's asked of all, all believers. First Peter 4, 9 says, be hospitable to one another without complaint. It's interesting. He's, uh, it seems he's writing to, uh, to, <clears throat> to churches, to believers, who would already know to one another, but he's telling them to be hospitable to one another. He's telling them basically to, to love the strangers among them. Basically, among believers, they ought to love those who are, even, those who are unfamiliar with them. Strangers. Now, this would have been particularly applied in the day in those days because of the dangers of travel, the poor condition of inns, and, and the many Christian, well, if you will, refugees that existed in that time due to persecution. 
It made it essential then for Christians, and especially elders, to show kindness to strangers who would come into their towns, who would join them. Inevitably, too, these would join them in their places of worship, which happened to be, in those days, what? Their, their homes. Their homes. So th- when you welcome them, you would welcome them not only to worship with you, but you would, they would share meals together. They would, if they didn't have a place, they would offer them a place to stay even. Nowadays, travel safety and resources have changed, obviously. But the necessity of showing kindness to strangers, especially believers, who join us in worship is still important. It just may look a little different. We expect the elders of a church to be welcoming of strangers. (laughs) Uh, Because that's, he sets an example for the rest of us. He must love strangers. And Elder him also, not only does he love strangers, he welcomes people into, their, into our midst, but the Elder is also going to be one who, is, who loves what is good, who loves what is good. His desire for those things is for those things that are, are inherently good, morally good. He is one who basically lives Philippians 4.8. Philippians 4.8, I'll put it up here for you. Paul writes to the Philippians, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Think about it on these things. Meditate on these things. Applications, pursue these things. An elder of a church is going to be one who pursues good things, you know. He's going to like good things. He's going to, these will be his desires. You'll find it on, that if you go to his Facebook page, you'll find he likes Jesus Christ in the Bible, in heaven, you know, those kinds of things. Okay. Don't get, you know what I mean. He's going to like, he's going to be passionate and pursue the things that are good. He's going to try to sanctify the things of this world, even though things that are secular, he's going to see it in a sanctified manner. Because he pursues and he, he loves what is good. Thirdly, not only does he love what is good, but he also, the elder must be sensible. He must be a sensible man. The term is translated in some of your Bibles as self-controlled and sober-minded. Describe someone who is basically prudent, thoughtful. He doesn't do things basically, any, at least do things important on a whim or without careful thought. Interesting, this word is used on total four times in the New Testament. Three of them are here in Titus. Here, and then two other places in chapter 2, verse 2 of older men, and chapter 2, verse 5 of younger women. So we see that this idea of being sensible applies to everyone in the church. We all must be prudent and thoughtful in our minds. Sensible. An elder of a church cannot be careless. He must be responsible in his thoughts. Fourthly, he is going to be someone who is just. Uh, when I hear the word just, I don't know about you, but I think of the term, he's fair. You know, like justice, you know, fair. I think about fairness. But really, this, this word is a word that means someone who is upright or righteous. An elder, basically, then, is one who lives in righteously. He lives in accordance with God's commands, with God's law. And in so doing, he upholds God's standards for treating others. And that does include treating people with impartiality. 
as James teaches us, with fairness. But don't just, when you hear an elder must be just, you think fair. No, an elder must be righteous in his life. He must be one who obeys and follows, lives in accordance with God's law. Fifthly, he, an elder must be devout. Your translation, some of your translations have holy here. It was used in the Septuagint of those who are basically pledged to obedience to God. They would pledge themselves to obedience of God. And so this idea then is really one who is committed to the obedience of God. Not only is he he's righteous in life, but he's committed to it. He's committed to being a holy man, a, a devout man. Sixthly, an elder must be self-controlled. Some of your translations have discipline here. Though these two terms, self-control and discipline, they can convey the wrong idea here completely of what God is asking of the man of God. And this is simply not about basically someone using their time wisely, being, uh, being someone who's uh, very regimented in the use of their, of their resources or their time. They're disciplined, we say. Oh, they so look at them. They, they get up at 5 in the morning, and they, and they go to bed at a time. They use their time. They block out their time. They, they, uh, they're, just so, they're just so good at using their time. That's, it's not the idea here. What's more, it's not that the idea of we control ourselves, the self controls ourselves. Really, it's the idea of we are, that we must control ourselves but it's not we who do it, but by the Spirit of God who enables us to control the self. It's the Spirit of God at work in us that controls our fleshly passions and desires. Galatians 5, and 23 teaches us that the, when we are walked by the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is, among these things, is self-control. That's our same word. That's the Spirit of God who produces self-control in us, the control of our fleshly desires, our fleshly uh, pursuits and passions. So taking then together all these attributes, these six positive qualifications of an elder, reflect then one whose life is controlled by the Spirit of God. Instead of following after his own passions and desires, he follows after the passions and desires of the Spirit. And his attitudes and his actions will reflect it. There is one final quality here that we find in this text. One final quality of an elder that Paul will elaborate and spends a whole verse elaborating. It's kind of it's kind of funny. Verse seven, he talk quickly, shoots out five. Verse eight, he shoots out six of them. But in verse nine, he takes his time in, in drawing out this one single qualification. And from this qualification, we get our fourth point of an elder. And the necessity of an elder who is above reproach in the church must be a gifted teacher. He must be a gifted teacher, the one who faithfully teaches God's word. Verse 9 says, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Now, in contrast to the previous qualities that describe who and uh, describe the elder, all of those other kind of attributes, if you look at them and kind of look at them lexically, grammatically, they were either nouns or adjectives, nouns or adjectives. But it's kind of interesting because here in verse 9, this quality is described in terms of an actual Greek verb. And so what that just hints at for us is this. That where the previous qualities, in fact, the majority of the qualities of an elder focus on who the elder is, his character. This verse, verse 9, focuses on 
what an elder does, his task, his action. Obviously, you really can't, you really shouldn't divide who he is versus what he does. Who he is will influence what he does, nevertheless. But this of alone, of all the qualifications of an elder, reflect the qualification of what he must be able to do. In fact, the parallel of this in 1 Timothy 3.2 calls that an elder must be able to teach. Didacticus. He's able to teach. He must be able then, here encourages us that, Paul says that he must be able to hold fast to the faithful word. The verb holding fast means to basically, just what it conveys, to take hold of something, to cling on to it. Why does someone have to hold fast to something, to cling on to it? The implication is that there are going to be times when you want to drop it, you want to let go of it, that there's going to be circumstances in your life, in a life where, of a preacher, of a teacher of God's word, that there will be opposition where the word that you teach are not that popular. They're not that welcome. They go against common cultural values. They're not. In fact, there may be times where it would mean persecution to teach this word. That is why. And in fact, for Paul, who is going to appoint these elders, that's exactly what they're going to experience in just a little bit. Because each of them are going to be called to then refute all the, 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 the great number of false teachers that were in their midst on their island. And they would face difficulties. They would not want, they would be tempted not want to hold fast to the faithful word. We need elders who will cling to the word of God when it's not popular. They will teach what God has to say no matter what the world has to say. They will teach it in season, out of season. They will teach it when thousands want to hear it and when only ten want to hear it. Why does he teach the word? Why, must, why, is he, why does he hold fast? Because what he holds fast to is the faithful word. It's the faithful word. It's a word that is trustworthy. It's the same, this, by the way, this word faithful is the same word that we saw earlier in chapter 6 of the, 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 the elder's children, that they need to be faithful children. Here it describes the word as being trustworthy. Some dependable. The word of God that is taught is, is faithful because it is in accord with the teaching of Christ. We know that God's word is faithful. We don't need to teach anything else. We can be tempted to teach psychology, sociology. We can teach new facts. We can teach much of uh, popular culture, Instagram tags. the latest hip-hop raps. What we need to teach is the faithful word, okay? That's what God's people need. Other stuff is just to amuse people, to tell you the truth. Now, there's room for some of that. But our primary thing is we, we hold fast is the word of God, the faithful word of God, which is in accordance with the teaching. And by the way, you're like, what teaching is this? Well, there's only one teaching. 
It's the teaching of Christ. It's the teaching of Christ. That's what this, the, the man of God, the elder of Christ's church, is going to hold fast to. He's going to hold fast to sound doctrine, to teaching this faithful word. And as such, uh, <clears throat> and when he's faithful, when he holds fast to the faithful word, he'll then be able to accomplish a twofold purpose. First of all, he will be able to exhort in sound doctrine. He will encourage the saints to understand and to live according to the doctrine that is sound. This word sound is a, is a word that basically means healthy. And it's not necessarily that the word itself is healthy, but the word produces health in those who hear it. The elder teaches the faithful word and exhorts in sound doctrine, the sound teaching, instruction, because he knows that this word is the milk and the meat that which the people of God need to grow healthy and strong. You will not grow from me feeding you anything else. What the latest sociologists have said about, um, about what makes a great leader, what makes you happy. Psychologists will do studies, say, so I can quote those things to you. They may be of interest to many of us, but they are, do not produce a healthy church. They do not produce the spiritual growth that is necessary. Only God's word is, given, is for that. So that's what the elder, why the elder must hold fast to the faithful word. Because he knows that only, it's through that faithful word that he can exhort in sound doctrine. Secondly, though, not only will he be able to exhort in sound doctrine, but then he will also, oh, I forgot to mention, in chapter 2, verse 1, Titus is told to teach, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. But the second thing that an elder then is able to do is that he will be able also to refute those who contradict. To refute those who contradict. He must be able to correct and rebuke those who teach aberrant doctrine. And if he doesn't hold fast to the word, he's not going to be able to teach, correct those who teach uh, heresy. In fact, uh, verse 10 through 16, which we'll look at two weeks from now, uh, describes the many false teachers that were in the midst. Many rebellious men were there. And they were upsetting whole families. And I believe that that might mean the whole churches. So the Cretans and the, the elders that were going to be appointed had a, a big task ahead of them. But that's why he must be above reproach. That's why he must be gift, a gifted teacher who holds fast to the faithful word. You know, as we examine and look for elders in this church, this qualification of being a gifted teacher is one of the most easily to identify. It's easy to identify. All we need to do is listen to him teach. Give him opportunity to preach or give him opportunity to teach Sunday school class. Listen to him in a small group, Bible study. Give him opportunity to lead uh, a, a, a small group discipleship or even one-on-one discipleship, counseling, a counseling opportunity. And you can just observe from that whether a man is able or gifted to teach. You can usually tell, particularly when they're preaching sermons or teaching lessons, you can tell within two or three sermons probably. But I would have to add, though, and say that not every elder must be good at preaching. To stand here from a pulpit and, and proclaim God's word. Some may teach well from the pulpit. Some may excel at teaching in smaller classrooms like our Sunday school classes, like our fellowship groups. Some will excel not in, this, in these bigger public groups, but in smaller groups. 
They're great Bible study leaders. They ask great questions to draw people to the truth. Some of them are just excellent one-on-one disciples, counselors. They're insightful in, in exam- listening to a person's problems and their, their circumstances and being able to give them word counsel from the scriptures to teach them what they need to change and how they need to live a life more in a more accordance with God's word. So it would be a mistake for us to just line up all our elders next week, the next two couple weeks, and just have each of them preach from here. Say, oh, well, you know, that wasn't a good sermon. Well, the, some of them will probably preach good sermons. But not all of them. It's, so, oh, they're, they're not qualified. That's, that's the wrong thing. You must examine them. Can they, are they able to hold fast the faithful word? And they all, we will all be skilled in teaching in different, different circumstances, different settings. The gift of teaching is not just something that kind of just automatically you become good at. It must be developed. Though it's give, gift of the Spirit, it needs to be developed. And I encourage all of you that, are, uh, that, are, that desire, aspire to the office of overseer to, be, to seize the opportunities to teach God's Word. Teach junior church. Teach junior hires. Oh, those are, those are good places to learn how to teach. They'll tell you. They'll be honest when they're bored. The rest of you guys are just really good at looking at me and making eye contact and nodding and saying, I don't know what he's talking about, but yes. No. Well, these are the qualities of an elder of Christ's church. He needs to be above reproach because in the church because he is first and foremost God's steward. He answers to God. He knows that he's going to give an account we need a, and he's going to be one who, who is not characterized by being led by the flesh. He does, he's not controlled by his desires, his pride, his anger, his control, desire for control or for wealth. Instead, he's a man who's controlled by the Spirit. He's full of the Spirit. And it will show that he's full of the Spirit because of the things that are his passions, things that are his heart, the things that he loves. He loves strangers. He loves the things that are good. He'll be hospitable. And much more, he'll be eventually one, he'll be one who is gifted to teach, who will teach God's word faithfully. He'll hold fast to it even when it's not popular. He'll tell you the hard things. And I was walking through one of our classes today. I won't tell you which one, but they were all, I was listening to one. I said, man, that elder is teaching some hard things today. I thank God for that. I said, wow, praise God. Teaching some hard things. Because he knows that those things, these truths are for sound doctrine. They lead to a healthy church. They lead, they, 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 they silence those who would be, teach error in the church. So pray for such men that God would raise them up. Thank God for such men that he has already placed them in our, some of these men in our midst. Pray for them because the work is great. The load is heavy. You know, there are days when it gets really heavy that I just wish I could switch jobs with our brother Tim Louie. You know, I mean, he, he does hard work. Don't get me wrong, brother Tim. You, you do hard work. I've done that work before. But just to vacuum the church, you know. If I could just vacuum dirt, uh, just if I could handle, remove all the sin of the church, like vacuuming the dirt on the, the carpets. Oh, that'd be so nice. And to tell you the truth, Dirt don't bite back. 
But, we, but those whom God calls his task, though we may feel overwhelmed at times, God makes us sufficient for the task. We must be led men who are led by the Spirit. But I would add further, you know, one more application for us, brothers and sisters. As we apply this to our search for another pastor, English pastor, we've, we've had one candidate come in already, and we'll eventually have another candidate come by. But I hope you can see how this text really should influence our search. It really should. I know I teach, and I know we... we Almost, we kind of get to the place, and I, I'm guilty of it too. We, we presume this. We presume that this is true almost of any man who walks in. If the elders called him to candidate, he must be a godly man, right? They must have done their homework. Well, I hope we have. But to tell you the truth, the elders can't know anyone unless he happens to be someone who we already know. And those are rare. We cannot know a man after two interviews, three interviews and have him fill out a questionnaire. You can't know a man's character. You can't see his heart. The only way we can see it really is through extended time. And then we ask you to know a man's heart by bringing him twice to preach. And yet this is the qualifications of an elder. And here we are calling elders to the church. And so, you know, not to say that, you know, it's impossible, but that's why we ask all of your feedback. Because where the, the time is short, we ask for the, that the Spirit of God would work among the church, that we would all be able to observe his character. His ability is easy to observe. We could all tell. You can just look at a man. You can listen to him. You can hear him. But to see a man's character, which it should be first, second, and third, those things take time, take much prayerful dependence upon the Lord. We should look for these things, strive to look for these How do we see this man's relationship in his family? How do we see that he's a godly husband? How do I see that he's a godly father? How do I see this man as being a, a man who's above reproach? Is he a good steward? Was he a good, how is he a good steward of Christ's church? And as we come to, hopefully you can kind of just get, get the sense of the, the overwhelming kind of, <laughs> requirement uh, of when we look for a pastor, a fellow elder, that you would pray, for, pray with us as we do so. Be involved in the process. Many of you have been. I thank God for you. Many of you who involved, got involved in the process in our last candidate come, that came through. And it would be a danger. It would be a disservice to the church of Christ if we all presumed that just simply because the elders called him to be a candidate that he must be a godly man. We must not let, be, we must not let the elders, simply the elders, uh, bear that burden. Just because he went to a certain seminary, that doesn't make him a godly man. Just because he came from a particular church, that doesn't make him a godly man. Because he has these skills in his past, he's done this, done this, and that, that does not make him a godly man. Only God, his spirit, makes this man godly. And it will manifest in his attitudes, reflected in the many, the countless tiny actions of his life, most of which go unseen in his life. We must depend upon the Lord. We must really pray that God will bring his man to this church, that he will confirm through our hearts, through our uh, corporate witness, as well as through the wisdom of the elders, that that man will be the man 
who will lead and come alongside this church. So, these are the men that God is going to raise. Let's look for such men. Let's pray for such men. Let's strive to be such men, brothers. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word and thank you for these truths and help us to Help us to look to your word always as we look to our elders. And even as we think about this church and the need for, for more elders, more godly men to shepherd and lead Christ's church here, we pray that, that first and foremost, you would raise them, Lord. We know it is you who make them, you who call them, you who gift them. It's you who, are, who are, will lead them. And so we pray that you would shape these men and make them visible and clear before our eyes. Lord, as we recognize them as such, may you use them to, the, to be faithful, to shepherd the flock, to faithfully teach the word of God through their respective ministries, through their lives. Help them to be examples to us of what it means to follow Christ. Cause them to be faithful stewards, Lord, who will not be ashamed in the day of judgment. And Lord, we pray that even especially as we look for a pastor in the coming uh, year, that you would help us, Lord. We are so finite. We cannot see everything about a man. So we ask, Lord, for your leading and your direction, your guidance. Guard us from making presumptions. Guard us from evaluating purely by two or three sermons. Help us to evaluate a man, to strive to evaluate him, to know him his character. Well, we know that we cannot quite see as you see. But Lord, help us to do, to strive to see as you see, to look at the man's heart, a man who is above reproach, a man who is not led by his flesh, but led by your spirit. Lord, pray for such men to bring, you would bring alongside us in the days ahead. And we thank you, Father, for the men whom you already placed among us, our faithful lay elders. I, Lord, I pray that you sustain them, cause them to stand, to hold fast to the word, to bear under the weight, the responsibility, to be faithful shepherds and stewards of your flock. Pray for them and thank God. Thank you for them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.